Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Adler. What's going on, everybody? It's another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. As always, I am your faithful and appreciative host, Don Abernathy. Thank you guys for continued support of our little World War II-based podcast, and thank you for sharing us amongst your friends and like-minded fellow World War II historian lovers and living historians and everything else that has to do with World War II. Speaking of World War II, Midway comes out this weekend. I don't know if anybody's excited to see that or if anybody's seen sneak previews. I might go check it out and give you guys a full report back. Got a lot of stuff going on this weekend, like always. As you know, last weekend I was up in Fort Morgan, Alabama for the 75th anniversary of the Peleliu landings, or Battle of Peleliu, I apologize. We will get into that more here momentarily. This weekend is VKE, um, Saturday and Sunday. Saturday I have my first Savage Race, so unfortunately I will not be there, but I shall do my best to get out there Sunday. And somewhere between Saturday and Sunday, I got to make a diversion, a detour, if you will, to the other side of the state because I found a World War II field telephone for dirt cheap. Cheap enough that shipping would cost more than what I'm paying for it, so I'm going to risk it and make the drive out there, and hopefully the guy doesn't stand me up. And uh, when I get that, I will post photos, and hopefully I can take that out to uh, VKE, and if Jerry Oxley and the boys have their equipment out there, I can throw some fresh batteries in it, hook it up, and see if the damn thing works, because... It's always a bonus when you buy something that old and it works as advertised. And let's get it out of the way. This episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been servicing all Southwest Florida since 2004, providing IT needs for everyone. Businesses big and small, veterinarian clinics, physical therapists, drywallers, AC companies, accounting firms. It doesn't matter. Home management. That's a big thing here in Southwest Florida. Home management companies, we take care of them as well. And, um, yep, give them a call, 239-283-1120. They provide um, two-form authentication, online antivirus, online backups, everything you need. If you live outside the state, which most of you do, give them a call, 239-283-1120. They can do some remote login and help you with any computer problems you're having, as long as your internet works. And as you know, if you go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, you'll see the Amazon link. Thank you guys so much. The numbers are coming in, and I'm actually starting to see some money generated from those links. And uh, good news, as you all know, a while back we got a sweet, um, I don't know, 12-channel mixing board that allows us to do uh, more clear and quality interviews and all that fun stuff. But the other part of that is we need microphones. Well, we just ordered some new microphones, and hopefully they will be here and in use by the next episode. So thank you guys so much for your support by going to Patreon and signing up for one of the tiers, for using that Amazon link. All that money, none of it goes to me, none of it goes to my bank account. It goes back to Digital 410 and buying equipment. So once again, go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on that Amazon link, save it to your favorites, put it in your toolbar, throw it on your desktop, wherever you need to put it. It will not cost you anything extra upon your purchase. It will simply just give me some commission fees, kind of like when you used to go to you know, a place to buy a washer, or dryer, or home stereo, and the uh, salesman would make a little commission. Well, by you guys using that Amazon link, especially this holiday season, we will get that money and we will buy more gear, buy more stickers, get to go to more long-distance events. And so, yep, Patreon, Amazon, and Sleefs.com, promo code D41040. Get all of your athletic apparel there. Save 40% on the shopping cart. And last but not least, please go to YouTube and search for Digital 410. I just posted a video, part one of my road travel trip to Fort Morgan, Alabama. 
I got to edit part two and put it up there. I don't think it would be longer than a two-part series. I don't have enough content. But once again, we'll get into a little more of that later as well. And for those of you who have been downloading the show via WTSPWorldWar2.com or D-410.com, I appreciate it and I thank you so much. But the easiest way to share us with your friends, if they're not web savvy, or if they are a creature of habits like most of us, if they're an Android user, they can go to Google Play, they can uh, go to podcast and look for WTSP World War II, or What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast. I haven't given this warning in a while, so I'll give it today. There is another What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast out there, but it's a podcast about the show The Office. It's about four years old. It has a picture of a water cooler. So when you're looking for our podcast, look for the OD green background with a white font in the military. Um, stencil styling that says WTSP World War II, your favorite podcast. You know, this is a little interesting story. I kind of was wondering how our friends at the um, event last weekend who flew in from Japan were able to get some of their gear through uh, TSA, through customs and all that, how much of it they flew down here, how much they shipped here ahead of time. But I know that our living historians are more professional, more responsible than this guy out of Detroit. Here's a little uh, modern-day World War II news for you. TSA at Detroit Airport finds grenade and bayonet in passenger's carry-on bag. An airline passenger, identified as a budding military weapons collector, has hopefully learned a lesson not to pack any grenades, bayonets, or knives inside their carry-on luggage the next time they head out to the airport. On Wednesday, reports surfaced as an unnamed military memorabilia enthusiast, say that five times fast, was trying to pass through security screening at the Detroit Metro Airport last month, only for Transportation Security Administration officials to flag his weapons in tow. The agent described the individual as a budding military weapons collector who apparently hadn't considered revealing the TSA's prohibited items list while packing, according to the MLives.com. The person reportedly filled their carry-on rucksack with an empty grenade, a bayonet, and a fixed blade knife. The incident occurred on October 12th, according to the press release from the TSA. After making the discovery, TSA agents shut down the checkpoint for almost 25 minutes while explosive specialists investigated the items. A spokesperson for the agency was not immediately available to offer further comment on the story. Across the nation, TSA screened 65 million passengers and has found 374 firearms and carry-on bags between October 7th and November 3rd. Laws regarding firearm possession vary by state to state, but the TSA can impose civil penalties for up to $13,333, very specific, per violation for anyone caught trying to bring weapons or any other prohibited items on board. And, you know, that was one of the things that kind of scared me off, if you will, from going to Conant via plane. Obviously, the um, cost in itself and the cost of carry-on luggage and once it gets over a certain weight, got to pay additional fees and then having to rent a car and all that. And so I always try to weigh the cost analysis versus driving from Florida to Ohio versus flying, renting a car and dealing with TSA and blanks and all that nonsense. So, real quick, if any of you have ever ran into an issue with TSA or any security screening or even gotten pulled over by the cops on your way to or from an event, because that's the other thing that I'm kind of waiting to happen. be interesting to see how um, interactions with a law enforcement officer would proceed after being pulled over with a truck full of military equipment, uh, firearms, bayonets, knives, and what have you. Um, has it happened to you? Or the, how did it go? Did the cops give you a hard time? Were they cool with you? Send us an email at info at WTSPWorldWar2.com. So send us an email at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And joining us on the phone right now, coming in from Camp Lejeune, South Carolina, 
This is the one and only Corporal Jack Spittler. Jack, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. How are you? Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule, and um, thank you for being one of the first active duty Marines to come on the show, What's the Scuttlebutt? And um, first and foremost, how are you doing today? No, I'm doing good. Good. Glad to be here. Well, thank you for coming on. Uh, one of the things we like to do when we uh, introduce a first-time guest to our listening audience is we like to, um, first and foremost, ask if you actively in the military, which we just answered that. We'll get back into that momentarily. But after that, um, i like to find out how you got into living history or what sparked your interest in World War II. Now, obviously, if joining the Marines started that, we'll start there. Or if the love for World War II and military history became first and led you to join the Marine Corps, we'll go that way. So where does it start for you? Um, I mean, kind of, kind of what you said there in the end, um, you know, grew up from a military family, not directly my father, both my grandfathers. Um, so I've always been interested in the military, but World War II really stuck, and that's kind of been the focus of my studies over, uh, I don't know, the past 15 years or so is when I really got into it. Um, and then in my senior year of high school is when I got into living history, mostly because I was 18, I was able to actually buy the firearms now. That helps. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So once I got, uh, you know, was old, old enough to um, legally own the firearms and purchase them, that's when I really got into the hobby. And did it almost every every other weekend. If there was an event, I was going for about, you know, two years. Um, I was doing that while I was in college. And, you know, college wasn't working out for me, and I decided to go join the Marine Corps. And I didn't start doing Marine Corps reenacting until after I was an active duty Marine. Interesting enough. But, um, yeah, it's pretty much uh, kind of the word. Well, uh, of, how it all came together. A lot of the guys we have on here, they start in the Civil War era because that's has been around the longest and has the largest um, interest. Did you start in the Civil mm -hmm. War or did you start out in World War II? Nope, just went straight into World War II. What was your uh, first impression? Uh, I was doing German 130 Panzerwehr. So you jumped right into the uh, the Axis side. Was there a larger... Exactly, exactly. Where, where were you living at when uh, you first got started in uh, reenacting? I was in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay, so you jumped in with those guys then. Yep. And uh, what's some of the, your favorite Florida-based events that you uh, had the privilege of participating in in the last few years? Um, probably Vaughn Kessinger's Express is a pretty good one just because it's so interactive with the public. Um, you know, you got the whole train set up out there. and I, I really like that event. And other than that, probably uh, the Dade Battlefield living history. I mean, I know as of recent years, they're not allowed to um, – they don't have any live fire – uh, battle reenactment anymore because the new Florida state laws where you can't shoot brass firing weapons on uh, state parks. But, yeah, not only um, does yeah, that... Yeah, in, in the past years, Dade, Dade Battlefield reenactment has always been a good one. Yeah, not only does that negate the ability to have a reenactment, but it also uh, wipes out the ability to have a weapons demonstration because, you know, a lot of these parks and a lot of these um, events, they're not large enough or you don't have a large enough... Um, uh, participation to put on a decent size mm -hmm. reenactment. So in those cases, you know, we put on a weapons demo. And not so much for us, the reenactors, because obviously ammo costs money, but let's face it, we live in a um, hands-on, multimedia, pure action society. And sadly, you know, without the bang-bang and the weapons demo, a lot of people don't aren't as as interested in coming out and just having a history lesson, sadly. Yes. Exactly, you know. I mean, as you said right there, it's the, the loud bangs and the cannons going off, you know, that excites people. But if you just kind of 
you know, sitting around camp and teaching people about uniforms and whatnot. It's not a not nearly as exciting. And some of the uh, parks have gotten to the point where they do not want any quote unquote civilians, non participants, to actually touch the firearms. And that's one of the other things that people um, enjoy doing is one having access to firearms that they wouldn't have access to in their daily lives. But not only that, but I'm sure you've experienced the same thing as I have. One of the first things people notice when touching any of the equipment, whether it's an M1 helmet, a rifle, a web gear, mm-hmm. what have you, is the weight, how heavy things were back then. And yeah. one of the ways we express discomfort in the daily lives as a soldier, and they actually did a great job out in Fredericksburg when they do their living history por- portion of their reenactment. They'll bring a young child out there and they'll hand them a toy gun and they'll put the web gear on them, the heavy helmet, and they just weigh them down with all this gear. And it really uh-huh. it really gets across to the people, especially when the child's eight or nine and they're just slumped down with all this heavy stuff on them, is, you know, the discomfort involved in, you know, the daily lives of soldiering. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's definitely um, a, a big part of it. I mean, people being able to, as we said earlier, you know, if you're just sitting there and teaching people, then, you know, you feel like you're in school or something like that. But be able to be hands-on, actually touch them, and um, feel the weight, all that good stuff, you know, that's that's really what gets people excited and then brings them back out either more events or um, the same event the following year. But, yeah, that's really a shame that they're, they're telling people, you know, you, you got to be hands-off can't, um can't really get the full picture of it, you know. Yeah, and, and kind of like you were alluding to, the difference between what we do in a living history event and sitting in a class is the hands-on, is being able to touch, feel, and let's be honest, when it comes to 75, 80-year-old equipment, smell, um, opposed yeah. to just sitting in front of a book or watching a movie. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get back to you real quick. So you, you were doing the living history thing for a while, you are doing German, and then uh, college wasn't your bag, it wasn't mine either, I didn't even try to go. And then you decided to join up, and you chose the Marine Corps over the Air Force, the Navy, or the Army, for that matter. Or you know what? I guess what led your path down to uh, the Marine Corps? Yeah, yeah, it's funny you say because growing up, I remember me and my buddies would always get in arguments, and they would tell me the Marine Corps is the best, and I would sit there and I would be like, "No, the Army's the best. They got the best equipment, best training, all this stuff." And for the most part, I kind of believed that right up until I I decided to go with the Marine Corps. And, um, yeah, I talked to both the recruiters just to see what, you know, they could offer and all that good stuff. But it really what changed, I was working at a restaurant um, in Jacksonville. And one of the servers who worked there had just gotten out of the Marine Corps. He was a, a machine gunner in the early parts of Iraq or the later parts of Iraq. And then he was a scout sniper after that. He did um, six combat deployments. His name's uh, uh, Zachary Crawford, great guy. But just from talking to him and, you know, the mentality of it and how the Marine Corps works, he really gave me the full rundown. And not in the way if he was trying to recruit me, just, you know, him and I having a casual conversation, talking about it, his experiences. And, uh, yeah, I decided to go with the Marine Corps pretty much based off of that, just from, um, you know, I figured I'd fit in better with them than the Army. And I'm glad I did it. I mean, I've seen the army, and I'm, you know, they got some good guys. But for the most part, I'm uh, much happier with the Marine Corps the way they do things. Now, I mentioned in a past podcast, um, one of the guys I first got started with when I was here, and since you work out of Jacksonville, I'm sure you know the guy. Um, I made the logistical um, mistake of my first impression was Marine Corps, 
And that was about five or six years ago before Blaski ever put on the first uh, PTO tactical event, and uh, PTO events were few and far between. And I fell, I got a hold of, uh, I was looking online for some uh, living history groups, and I got a hold of John Thomas up in uh, Bradenton, and he was doing the uh, first ID for a while. And now he's mm-hmm. obviously with uh, World War II Armor. And he had a young son who started, gosh, I think started, Coleman started when he was 14 or 15. Long story short, they're doing all these events. When he turned 18, he enlisted in the Army. And mm-hmm. he was telling his dad, now, I'm not even trying to compare the two. Um, so for those who listen, don't think that's my, my angle here. And, and you can, you know, give me your opinion on it. He was telling his dad when he was going through boot camp, com- compared to his everyday normal civilian counterpart, i.e. the other 18, 19-year-olds in boot camp who had no experience in JROTC, reenacting, anything, um, just from all his years in reenacting, standing in formation, wearing uniforms, knowing how the uniform's supposed to be, understanding the military guidelines, um, shaving, haircut, and the bare minimum of actual soldiering that we do in living history. But because of his years doing that, it gave him a little bit of step up as far as the basics of soldiering came when he got into boot camp. He was already used to wearing the uncomfortable uniforms and falling in and saluting and all that. So once, since he already got, he was already used to that, he could focus on the more you know, quote unquote, step you know further on down the line of becoming a soldier and all that. Did you kind of experience the same thing when you were going through boot camp? Just, oh, just the basic I mean, stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Um, not so much with uniforms, um, just because you know it's um, new for everybody, regardless if you've handled military uniforms and whatnot, how they're supposed to be properly worn, where everything goes. So, um, didn't really help me out too much in that aspect, but more so the field mentality. Um, you know, I've, before I even joined the Marine Corps, I'd slept, I'd dug a fighting hole, I'd slept in a fighting hole, you know, I'd done events where I was up for two, three days straight, because we're, you know, fighting all through the night, kicking out patrols, um, doing buddy rushing, you know, smaller things like that that we, you know, actually do in reenacting and living history, um, it, it was very easy for me to pick up those concepts, because i previously done it and as he said you know compared to the other guys who had no idea about any other you know very little knowledge of the military in general um definitely put me up uh, ahead of them a little bit i mean because correct me if i'm wrong i would assume at that level when you're talking civilian to civilian with no experience the closest thing to someone in boot camp who would have experience with physical suckiness would probably be a football player you know they might be yeah, getting yeah, used exactly. to banged around and you know in the physical playing through the pain, if you will. But, you know, if you're just a, a regular kid who came from the city or, you know, or what have you, you're you're at a little bit of a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. So, I guess real quickly, explain to those who aren't familiar, just give us a quick crash course through the boot camp of the United States uh, Marine Corps. Yeah, yeah, no, um, uh, I did that in Paris Island, South Carolina. It's a great place. I, I went during the winter time which is contrary to, you hear the stories, of, you know, it's so hot and there's sand fleas everywhere. And uh, for me, it was standing in the cold and the wet. But, uh, yeah, no, you show up and the first three days, really the first week, you're in a phase called receiving phase. And that's, you know, getting issued uniforms, medical, getting your head shaved for the first time. You got to go, you know, get your barracks and go to your platoons and all that. So the first week, you're just kind of getting all organized and, settled in essentially if you want to call it that um no. yeah and then i was my my training company was actually the very last company 
to graduate with the three-phase program. They've recently, in the past two years, changed it to um, there's now four phases of boot camp instead of three phases. What's... And that just has to go into, you know, the, the training schedule, when they're doing stuff. Um, and, see, I, I was the very last group to do the third phase program. And I actually got to miss out on a lot of things because the companies behind me were on the new four-phase program and our schedules conflicted a little bit. So, like, I know half of my company didn't do the gas chamber, repelling, you know, big uh, big ticket items that you see on the recruiting posters. They didn't do a lot of that stuff. But, yeah, it's it's a rude awakening, boot camp is. You know, getting screamed at all the time, you know, waking up early. You got fire watch in the middle of the night, learning how to not fall asleep on post, uh, learning how to report your post. It's just, it's a lot of messing up and getting yelled at, you know. But I will say, Marine Corps boot camp is probably the funniest experience I've ever gone through in my entire life. It is the funniest place that you're not allowed to laugh at. Because drill instructors are terrifying on one end, but they are some of the funniest guys that you'll ever meet. Yeah, and if you're anything like me, I enjoy ironic and uh, ironic humor or things yeah, that aren't supposed yeah, to be yeah, funny yeah. when they are. And, and you know, it's not as bad now, but, you know, you used to hear it a lot in the 90s and the 80s and, you know, post-Vietnam. And when all the Vietnam movies come out, Full Metal Jack and all that, people, they would think that uh, drill sergeants are screaming just for the sake of screaming. And it's like, and I've mentioned this in the past, I'm talking to another person who served, it's like, no, they're trying to get you to be able to function in complete chaos. Them screaming yeah. at you, creating confusion, having five guys yell at you, that's the closest thing they can create indoors to a loud, insane, hectic battle environment without being in a battle environment, being indoors. They're trying to get you to realize that, hey, I can function and operate and follow directions and survive in insanity. And that's what they're trying exactly. to do. Exactly. And that's why they're so strict when it comes to what you know the corners on your bed and how your foot locker looks and all that. And it's not that they give a shit about your bed so much as if you can't follow the simplest instructions as uh, per making your bed down to a T, then how are they going to expect you to follow directions in a situation where those directions are going to help you survive what you're going through? And it's that's yep. how yeah, they that's some, hammer it down. That's some. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, that's something they teach you very early on. In, in boot camp and in the phase of like, look, some of the stuff you're going to go through may seem stupid, but everything that they do here is for a reason. Like literally everything. They have it down to a science on how to train people to become Marines. So just remember that when you're doing something and you're like, why the hell am I doing this? This is dumb. But yeah, and as you said, the screaming, you know, it's everything's chaotic. Um, you have to do... You know, even just the way you talk to people, like you have to talk in the third person the whole time. Like that's that's a reality check right there. It's no longer me, us, uh, you know, you. It's the drill instructor, this recruit, these recruits. You know, and even the drill instructors talk in third person. They, they don't refer to themselves as me. They refer to themselves as the drill instructor said to do this, or the drill instructor thinks this. So it's it's uh. Yeah, boot camp's a weird place, man. Real weird. One of the questions I have post boot camp: um, What sort of PT uh, schedule or demand do you guys have? Do you, are you required to do X amount of PT a day or a week, or 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 are they pretty much saying, okay, you know what we expect of you? It's up to you to stay in fighting 
you know, fighting shape. I mean, what sort of PT requirements do you guys have post, you know, post boot camp once you're a yeah, Marine after and, all that good and stuff. you got your assignments? Yeah, so um, uh, the Marine Corps order, like the actual division or the Marine Corps-wide order states that everybody has to PT five days a week for one hour at least. One hour PT sessions five days a week. Um, and then it's completely up to you what you do for the most part. You have to be able to maintain. We have two different physical fitness tests. Um, your PFT, which is just your physical fitness test, and your CFT, which is your combat fitness test. And those are ranked in the first, second, and third class. Third class being the worst, first class being the best. And uh, as long as you can maintain um, a first class PFT, CFT, and really it's like height and weight requirements, um, as long as you fall within those parameters, like, it don't really bother you. But if you're starting to slack and, you know, you're gaining weight, your um, your test scores are going down, that's when they're going to start, you know, focusing on you more, put, putting you in uh, remedial PT platoons, and, you know, you got to work, work harder. What's and, your uh, uh, preferred mode? Are you a runner? Or are you a gym rat? Which way do you go? Me, I'm more of a, I'm more of a runner. I, I like cardio a lot. Well, I say I like cardio. I'm good at cardio. Um, so, yeah, when I'm PTing my guys, it's typically like my average PT, if I ain't got anything planned out for that day, it's like, all right, let's go on a five-mile run. Just like casually down the road, go run five miles, come back, you know, we'll do a little circuit workout. Um, yeah, that's pretty pretty average, you know. I like flipping tires a lot, big seven-ton tires. That's one of my favorite workouts because it's just – everything in your body so yeah typically i'll you know make my dudes go uh we'll go run together a couple miles flip some tires um do some sort of a circuit like a ab circuit or you know we'll do some buddy drags buddy carries we, uh, we try and keep pt as combat oriented as you can you know all around fitness being able to run fast run for a distance run with weight, like carry people, um, carry heavy rucksacks, and like speed and agility, being able to move quick and react to things quickly. That's that's kind of the focus of it right now. Have you ever entertained the idea of doing an obstacle race with all You're your experience? Doing an obstacle race, whether it's a Spartan, a Savage, a Tough Mudder, have you ever entertained doing one of those? No, no, never. I'm actually doing one Saturday. See, I had all these great plans and all these uh, – ideas of grandeur that I was going to do when I was in Alabama. One of them is I just got a new pair of trail running shoes and I was going to go running on Sunday and break them in, but uh -huh. it was way too goddamn cold. And, uh, but yeah, I'm actually got that Saturday. So I'm going to miss VKE Saturday, but I hope to get out there Sunday. Cause I got to go out to Dade city and do my first savage race. It's uh seven miles and 28 obstacles. So that ought to be fun. I don't know. That'd be cool. But let's uh, get down to brass tacks. And that is the 75th anniversary of the battle of Peleliu in Fort Morgan, Alabama. Yeah. Um, which you weren't, were you there last year? I was not. I really, really wish I could have gone because the unit that I'm in actually, um, fought the battle of Tarawa. So I was getting my kit together for it and everything, but, um, I was in, I ended up being in California for training during the event so I couldn't make it. Well, um, one more thing I want to talk about before we actually get into the World War II stuff again is you were, you and yeah. I were talking about Hurricane Irma last year. And as the guys yeah. who listen to the podcast know, I was without power and water for 16 days of sucking all that. But you were actually, it affected uh, where you were stationed at as well. And you guys kind of got flooded out a little bit. But uh, you said you, you guys do what you do best in shitty situations, and that is uh, make it positive. And so what happened to you during yeah. Irma? 
Um, so personally for me, it was, you know, I say the hurricane was great personally for me. Obviously a lot of people were more affected by it, but, um, yeah, they gave us pretty much two weeks. They were like, evacuate, go away. Just check in with us every day so we know you're alive. And that's that. So we, I, me and my buddies refer to it as the hurricane because it was just two weeks of vacation without having to use up our leave days. Um, so I think I went, I went to Florida, North Carolina, um, up in the mountains. And, yeah, I just had a good old time. But base, base got pretty beat up. It's still beat up. Because um, Marine Corps, you know, honestly doesn't have a lot of money. Like, they're the lowest funded branch, and you can see why. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sitting in a barracks room right now. It's supposed to be condemned, but I'm currently living in it. <laughs> yeah, what's a little asbestos between friends? Yeah. But, yeah, most of the big buildings around here still have tarps on them to keep water out. It's been over over a year, almost two years now, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, it's been about a year and three months. Yeah, yeah, okay, so yeah, closer to the year. Yeah, no, so there's still a lot of damage on base, and they're just now starting to get to it. They're just getting the funding for it, I guess. But Yeah, I never realized yeah. the Marine Corps was the lowest funded branch of the military until about 2001, no, 2003 when I was out in California and I was going to school for um, computers. And I was mm-hmm. going to school for A plus and MCSE, and there's a there's a Marine in my class. He actually taught all this stuff in the Marine Corps, but his certificates didn't mean anything. Well, his Marine Corps studies didn't have any real place holding in the civilian world, so he had to go out and get certificates and stuff he's been teaching in the Marine Corps for years. And I think Windows XP had been out for maybe a year and a half, and prior to that was Windows Millennium and the Windows 2000. He was telling me the Marine Corps at that time was getting ready to upgrade from Windows 3.1 to Windows 2000. And this is after <laughs> Millennium and XP had already been out and uh, Windows 7 was well on its way. And then that's when I realized, wow, these guys are underfunded. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everything's broken or breaking and held together by duct tape for the most part. So now yeah. we're back in Fort Morgan, Alabama. What You got there, what, Friday morning? Yes. Oh, no, Friday afternoon. I was on the road for nine and a half hours, and so one of the things I was looking forward to, and um, wires crossed, and I got a little late start because I had some stuff going on here at the family, was the nighttime tactical. But um, yes. you guys did that Friday. What did you go? Uh, what all happened at on location from the time you got there till the nighttime tactical? I know you guys did some uh, drilling and some, um, basically, obviously you set up your tents. You got to meet the the guys coming in from Japan and all that. But give a little breakdown of what you guys did on Friday afternoon. Yeah, Friday afternoon, I mean, I showed up, me and, uh, and Andrew showed up kind of late. So we'd pull up in just our P-41s. We still have all of our kit and everything else packed away. And they're like, we're pushing out 15 minutes, turning your paperwork, and we're going. Hmm. It's like, nope, okay. So we just grabbed all of our web gear, our, uh, our packs, and geared up. And within 10 minutes of being there, we were in formation getting accountability to push out. And then we pushed out down by where the battle reenactment had started the next day. Um, down, down by, by the batteries. Um, batteries. Yeah. And we hung out there for about an hour or two. They brought us chow. So we all you know, pulled out our mess kit, started eating chow there. Um, yeah, just kind of hung out for a little bit. And then we set up a defensive position just at dawn. Uh, at dusk, I'm sorry, not dawn. Um, and yeah, it was literally just the whole, you know, company of guys we had there, more sort of platoon size if we're talking numbers here, but sure. you know, the 
F Company 2-5 was set up in a defensive position on the tree line, and the Japanese were going to be um, doing some infiltrating and recon. So, you know, they gave us our order. They're saying expect to see, you know, Japanese teams and squads in low numbers trying to figure out what kind of firepower we got. So we, we set up, and it was pretty quiet. Uh, we were on the far left flank, uh, second platoon was, and we hear the right flank just completely light up. So we know that they're down there. And then they tell us, they're like, hey, we want you guys to swing to an L-shape so we can kind of draw them in and ambush them that way. And it ended up being knee-deep water, everything, you know, 10, 10 meters in front of us. So all of second platoon got pretty wet that night. Um, but, man, it was... It was it was really awesome as far as it was my first PTL event, first time reenacting uh, for the Marine Corps. So it was, it was awesome, you know. The, with with the two guys who flew in from Japan, so they're out there screaming fluent Japanese at us. And, you know, that thirty-seven millimeter guns going off, the machine guns are going off. It was it was really awesome, you know. Moments like that reenacting, um, you really sit back and you're just like, wow, this is this is pretty crazy right now. Yeah, I think that's why we all love tactical events so much is because no matter, during a regular reenactment, no matter how much you put into it and you want to stay air correct, when you got hot dog vendors and people standing around and techno music playing from some booth down, you know, a couple, you know, yards down, it just kind of takes it out of you. But when you, especially in a place like Fort Morgan, because due to the fort itself and the high walls, it's one of the few reenactments you can go to where you stand out in the field and spin 360 degrees and with the exception of a, a uh, park bathroom and a building you're basically in 1943 i mean you don't see any cars you don't see any like i said hot dog vendors anything going on it's just you out on a peninsula uh, with the exception of oil tankers out in the uh, ocean uh, golf which with a little bit of imagination you can just picture them as being a fleet but that's yeah one, that's one of the, my favorite things about being there is no light pollution you're out there and it's just us especially at night and you can really really get into it and as I said before, I had all these delusions of grandeur. I want to come down there and I want to record a podcast. I want to shoot all this video. But to be honest, the time I got there, I just wanted to take it in and just get away from technology and just enjoy the weekend like everybody else. And so I didn't end up doing any recording or anything like that. And I just sat in and just took the weekend off and just enjoyed it. Yeah. No, that's the way you do it, man. I mean, that's reenacting really is an escape. Um, yeah, as you said, you turn your phone off, you know, you, you just immerse yourself as much as you can, and Fort Morgan's a great place to do it, as you are saying. Well, not only that, and, uh, but you can immerse yourself in, I don't want to sound like an old man, but activities of the past. Um, obviously, on a park and grounds like that, we can't have campfires, but usually at these type of events, once the public goes away, it's just us, maybe a few drinks, sitting around a campfire, no phones, no, you know, nothing. And you just actually can sit down and socialize with people. And I think that's part of the reason why our reenacting community is so tight is because we get to spend hours, if not weekends, getting to know people because we're not too busy, you know, dealing with cell phones or having our heads up our asses. It's kind of like it was back in the 90s and, and before, before we had all this technology, we can actually sit down, get to know each other and share, and share stories. Yeah. No, it's, it's it's great. I love. I mean, my my buddies think I'm crazy because uh, you know, I spend so much time out in the field. I'm an infantryman, so that's my job is to go in the field and shoot guns and eat MREs. And then uh, I come home on vacation just to go do it again. But, yeah. 
you know, as you said right there, it's just, uh, it's real old school hanging out, getting to know people. You know, I'm 22, but I got friends who are in their 40s and 50s. Um, you know, I casually talk to all the time. And it's because I go to these events and I meet people that are, you know, I actually get to know people. Um, it's not, you know, I think it's great. I, I really do enjoy and love reenacting. I wish I could do it more. Uh, right now but yeah no, that's one of the biggest draws for it i think for a lot of people is it's it's real if, if that makes sense so i pulled in and i actually start to as soon as i pulled in i hear all the fire gunfire going off i'm like son of a bitch i missed it but uh I'm, i live down in south florida um the day before i left you know i'm walking around 93 degree weather and as i'm driving north it's getting cooler and cooler so I get out there and I'm starting to set up my camp and I have my P41s on and my T-shirt and I end up throwing a sweatshirt on because at that point I think it was down to like 52 plus wind chill. Uh, us being out on a peninsula right across the street from the Gulf, um, it being winter time, it's November, it got damn cold pretty damn quick. And I'm sitting on my tent and I'm kind of annoyed that I missed it and missed it and I saw you guys come back and saw you soaked in water and I said, hmm, maybe it's not too bad that I missed it because I knew I was gonna be sleeping and I didn't ha- I wouldn't have- I didn't have a change of uniform I did. I was originally going to bring my P42s just to sleep in because they're double layered, but I was like, no, nah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it authentic. And so when you guys came tropping back all covered in mud, I was like, maybe it's a good thing I missed it. Yeah, yeah, no, it wasn't such a bad thing. Yeah, right before we stepped in the water, we were looking at each other. We were like, me and my buddy Andrew, same thing. We really brought the one set of P41s. We had some warming layers, like jackets, wool shirts, but um, well, I only brought two pairs of socks for the weekend. And uh, yeah, we looked at each other and we were like, this is going to get cold, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Screw it. Let's do it anyways. And, uh, you know, it, this goes for actual Marine Corps experiences and also with reenacting. It's like the worst of times always end up being, you know, what you remember and the stories you talk about with your buddies. Like, you remember that? That really sucked. But it was awesome. Well, let me ask you this. Now that you spent a weekend and a night in some soggy-ass P-41s and some boondockers, at any point... Did a thought come in your head? God, I'm glad our, our uniforms and our equipment has advanced so much more in the last 75 years. Um, doing what I do on a daily basis would be a little more uncomfortable doing it in this gear every day. Absolutely. I'll tell you the first time I really realized that was my battalion had, this was last year for the 4th of July, I believe. <clears throat> we call them forced fun days because, you know, oh, it's a fun day, but you have to do this. We call yeah. it forced fun. It's usually not that fun. Anyway, this one was a, um, I think a two or three mile run, and you know there's families and kids there. And, you know, I decided, well, you know, I'm gonna show some little some esprit de corps, and I showed up in my um, my World War II, you know, reenacting Marine Corps kit, and it ended up being a big hit. But I I did this run, this two or three mile run in that kit, mm-hmm. full combat load. You know, I had the upper pack, the knapsack, the bedroll. Mm-hmm. You know, rigged up on the, literally just rigged up like an invasion kit. And I ran in this thing for like two or three miles in North Carolina, July. And it was hot. It was not good. Yeah. I'll tell you, at the end of it, I was like, you know, we have to wear heavy flak jackets and carry heavy packs now, but at least it's comfortable. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's when I really appreciated the gear that we have now. Well, the footwear alone, I mean, the boondockers I have is from the run that What Price Glory put out, right? Or- around the time of um, the creation of the Pacific, and the leather on those are so thin that I'm going to admit it. I put some Dr. Scholl's in those motherfuckers because for some reason the the right boot 
um, the way the leather folds out. It doesn't happen to my left foot, but before I put um, Dr. Scholl's in them, that right one, um, the way your foot would slide around because of how loose it was, I would get these blisters on my pinky toe the size of my thumb. And it was because my foot would sli it, they're so loose, and it would actually slide down to where the leather um, pushes out on the right-hand side. And so my toe would actually go down on the side of the sole a little bit, and it would just create – would, I wouldn't be able to walk for three days. So finally, I just put – I put insoles in them. I'm not, you know, I'm not ashamed now. But other than that, you know, be honest with out of my kit, and I've actually had a couple guys here or one guy look at my tent one weekend and tell me I was hardcore uh, here in Florida. Uh, with the exception of the Dr. Shoals and my Boondockers, that's the only modern day stuff I take. With the exception of my, my, you know, food and all that. Um, I got mm -hmm. the, I got the original era style skivvies. I don't take a pillow. I use my uh, haversack or my. Um, Overseas bag is a pillow. I don't take any sleeping bags, no yoga mats. I think I brought four wool blankets, and um, I have a ground tarp that came with my original tent. And I, I discovered, and here's a little hint for you guys, especially if you're warm-blooded folks like us, and then you find yourself camping out in with wind chill, let's just say 38-degree weather, could be a little higher. Take that poncho and put it over top of your wool blanket, and that'll the plastic and that rubber helps keep that body heat in. That helps. Yeah, I got a windshield. <laughs> Well, and the other thing I did on Saturday night, because Sunday night, you know, or Friday night, we all got together afterwards, and we went down to the mm -hmm. fort, and that was my first time actually in the bunker at the fort, or the barracks at the fort, and we were hanging out the, you know, the Japanese reenactors and the guys who flew in from Tokyo, and we're having sake and having a great time, but we're in that nice little, you know, barracks where it's, we're out of the wind, and then it's time to go pass out, and we walk back out, and it's windy as all get out, and... I'm laying in my tent and all that, and the wind's just blowing underneath it. Because you slept in a pyramid tent. I was out. Or no, were you in a pup tent? I was in a pup tent, yeah. Well, you probably dealt experienced the same thing. The wind was just blowing right underneath it. Yeah, no, there was no stopping out there. Well, what I did Saturdays, I noticed one of the guys put sandbags around his to prevent flooding. And I was like, well, the hell with flooding, that keeps the wind out. So I took my ammo crates and my all my other crates and I sat it on the right hand side where the wind was blowing through. So Saturday night wasn't as bad. I was able to keep the wind up by doing that. And I mm -hmm. just hunkered down in those blankets. And the worst part, and the worst part is always, as you know, cause you deal with it in real life is the, what the temperature wasn't so bad. It's just sleeping on this hard ass ground that just, I know you're supposed to, when you set up a tent, dig a little pocket for your ass to, to go down into, but we never do. And so we're just sleeping on hard, yeah, hard soil. And it just, that's the worst part is the tossing and turning all night. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'll tell you on because uh, I just got back from deployment. I was deployed to Norway. Uh, yeah, I got back, um, you know, about a month ago, and that was probably one of the only things that I actually really liked about that country. Because we were up in the Arctic Circle, not the fun part of Norway, but uh, was everything out there in the woods and the training areas. The ground has this thick layer of spongy moss and it's nice. like sleeping on a mattress out in the field it's awesome as far as field sleep goes nature's you pillow top you just, you just sink into it yeah that's fantastic and so we got up saturday um it was nice and cold a lot of a lot of beautiful pictures on facebook because the way the sun came up over the tents and all that a lot of people got a lot of great photos we um we had our breakfast and we um did a formation and then we had some time to mill about and then obviously the public came through and were you the one who set up the field telephone? Yes, yes, yes. I, I set up those phones. Well, interestingly enough, um, like I said earlier, I got to go to um, Dade City 
Saturday for a um, Savage race, but I found a field telephone on Facebook Marketplace, and the guy's only asking 45 bucks for it. Oh, yeah, hop on there. And, well, it's over off Merritt Island outside of Miami. And so Saturday, mm-hmm. um, my race is early, so um, I'm going to hit him up Saturday, see if he still has it, and then I'm going to drive out to Miami and, and scoop it up. And then I'm hoping Sunday when I go to VKE that Jerry Oxley will take his equipment and then I can wire it in and see if it, it if it's actually any good. Even if it's not for 45 bucks, I mean, hell, with it. it's got a great display. Oh, yeah, just for a display item. That's, that's not bad at all. Yeah. yeah we... They're fun. They're, they're real fun. I like having them around. Um, Especially for the kids. Yeah, exactly. Like an interactive thing for the public, that's usually what I use them for. And you got, you know, the other one hidden away. and You get a ring and you're like, oh, here, pick up the phone. And then, you know, next thing they know, they're getting a call for fire transmission, trying to get, you know, or there's a squad who's getting ambushed, and they're setting up their, you know, report. And that, uh, yeah, typically the public, they like like that stuff a lot, you know, gets them engaged. Yeah, I like to grab the little kids, and I'll dial it up, and I'll, you know, whoever answers them, like, I got a VIP here, I want to talk to you, and I'll put the kid on there, and usually after about five minutes, I'll have them order a pizza or some sort of food, and they have a lot of fun times, and... You always make the moms laugh because, like, well, when we were kids, we had the same thing, but it was on our wall with a 20-foot wire so we can get some privacy <laughs> talking in the closet. But, yeah, it's those interactive things that can really um, improve your living history display and get the larger crowds around your, your little pocket, uh, your tent, your little, well, not a booth per se, but your little area. It's just, you know, I take all my mess kit and, you know, I'll, kind of straighten my tent up and I'll put everything that I have on display that way when people come up you just talk to them because I mean as fun as the event is without the public and without the you know the education we wouldn't have an event to go to and so it's key that we as living historians and reenactors we keep up on that and continue to strive to uh, improve our impressions and our displays yeah yeah I mean to, I know at first for me I had really for the most part no interest in uh in, you know, dealing with the public, essentially, you know, the people showing up. I just wanted to go out there with my buddies and dress up because I thought the stuff was cool. And, um, but yeah, no, as I've, as I've done it, you know, I kind of have a shift in perspective there where I realize that, you know, we're here to teach these people. So, you know, setting up a, uh, a good camp and like good displays and things, you know, people can come look at, pick up and feel it and touch. You know, that's what it's really about. And that's what I tell people when they're like, oh, you know, how much does getting into reenacting cost? Because, I mean, really, we all know as reenactors, it's very, very, it can be very expensive. And, uh, yeah, I typically tell them, like, you know, it's probably going to be somewhere about a thousand bucks for your kit if you're going to do it right, for your mm-hmm. uniform, your rifle. Uh, sometimes the rifle do more than that. And then on top of that, you got to have your, or you're going to want to have a nice, camp display um, and you're going to want people to come up and look at your stuff because if not you're just sitting there and there's no point for you to be there yeah exactly and not only that but especially like a weekend long event like we did the more stuff you have in your camp that stuff's you know obviously if you're something you're going to use you want to get reproduction but that stuff did serve a purpose and one of the things which was kind of a big hit for the, the few people who huddled up around my tent uh, going back to John Thomas a few years ago, I got the idea from him. You know, after about, I don't know, three or four years of reenacting, I just, I discovered, well, what's the worst part of a long week in reenacting? And that is the food. Luckily, yeah. thank God, we had a great crew who brought down their field kitchen. That was a beautiful thing. It's always, that's only my second time in an event. The first time I was out in um, 
out in Texas, but to have guys there with the cleaning stations alone is a godsend. Yes. It's so nice to have a clean mess kit after each meal instead of wiping it down with a bandana and canteen water. Um, but to have hot mess served is great. But one of the things I did, and I just recently posted a video from when I created it that I have on YouTube, is I basically made a cook stove that looks like just an ammo crate when you're not using it. Because, one, nothing makes a display look bad than having you know, stuff covered up with canvases and tarps like your, you know, your cook stoves or your coolers or your bottles of water. And so I try to, I try to do my camp so that the ammo cans that I use to travel, to pack my tents away, my, my blankets, when I get there, that now becomes storage because obviously my blankets and tents are being used for something else. And so I don't have to sit there and try to hide stuff or, you know, all that. I made two box. They look like two boxes stacked up, but my cooler's inside there. So, you, so when I'm not using it, it, just looks like, you know, crates stacked up. But um, making that little cooked, cooked uh, that little burner stove. Like when I got there Friday night, and after everybody was sitting down, I made, I pulled out and made some steaks on my flat top. And, but more importantly, Saturday morning, the ability to make hot, fresh coffee. Strong, hot, fresh coffee that's not watered down. I think I went through three pots of coffee because everybody kept coming over. Oh yeah, I mean, I got some from you. That was that was a blessing right there. Because I mean, you know, the field kitchen eventually had coffee, but uh, yeah, no, you definitely had the best coffee out out at that event. Well, and there's no it's no hack on them, but when you're making bulk stuff like coffee, it's hard to yeah measure down. Okay, well, for twenty three gallons of water, I need X amount. It's just too hard to figure it out, and so so yeah, I mean, just to have hot food, coffee. I didn't have to do it because they did a great job of feeding us, but I actually brought pancakes. I was all prepared to make pancakes Saturday morning, but they <laughs> they pulled out the eggs and, uh, and the grits and all that, and I was like, well, hell with my pancakes. And, and so that yeah, was... Yeah, they fed us well. Um, the other cool thing about the event, when we actually did the reenactment, is the flyover from the plane. That was cool. Yeah, and, we had that spotter aircraft. I remember them saying that there was going to be a, a, a replica Corsair as well. I, I honestly didn't see that. Did, did you ever... From what I understood, from what I understood, going back to the wind chill, um, I didn't know which plane it was, but I was told I overheard Galen say, due to the high winds, that one of the planes wasn't able to make it, and it was probably that because I did remember hearing there was supposed to be a Corsair, but I guess due to the high winds or something, it was unable to unable to make the flight. Yeah, uh, well, that's probably good. Th- I mean, what that weekend mm-hmm. they uh. Was it the Vero Beach Air Show? The Stewart Air Show. No, the, the, the Tyco Air Show, I'm pretty sure. I thought it was Stewart. They, um, they, lost, a, they lost an aircraft. It went down, and the pilot, pilot was uh, killed with it. And then two weeks prior to that, there was another air show, in, uh, a reenacted air show in Atlanta. And they, they had an aircraft go down there, too. So it's good calling them. And, you know, two's, two's too many. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one's too many, but yeah, it's... Yeah, I had a couple, and you probably know them too. The actually, no, that was at the Stewart Air Show, believe it or not. And I'm usually at that event. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Um, we had a couple of the German reenactors I know who were there that weekend, and it's just it's sad to hear it. And props, you know, and also props to the National Museum of World War II out of New Orleans for sending down their crew again and their artillery piece. That definitely makes for a good time to have that extra support and the extra noise. And, you know, Brandon Deschatel and his boys, they're a nice, great group of guys, and it's always awesome to have them back down. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah, I've, I've never worked with them actually. Typically, I mean, in Florida, we always see uh, World War II armor come out. But, sure. Um, yeah, to know that they uh, they come all the way from New Orleans, you know, it's, it's really cool. Yeah, I actually ran their platoon last year. I was their their platoon leader last year because. Um, uh-huh. But f- <laughs> not not to hack on my guys, but first platoon, nobody showed up. I was the only one who showed up this year. Um, really? A week prior, I had six guys fall out, seven guys fall out due to one, you know, one's going through divorce, the other one's, a uh, group of them were going to carpool, and like two of them had works, so they couldn't go. But the week prior, I still had five guys on my roster who were supposed to be there, and I'm setting up, and next morning comes, and there's no other tents around me. It's like, hmm, so I ended up falling in with third platoon because none of my guys showed up. Yeah. Yeah, they were saying a lot of, a lot of people uh, last minute bail, but we had what, over 150 people that were uh, RSVP to go and to show up to the event or register for the event, but you know, it ended up only having, I think, just over 50 people. That was, was kind of a shame, but... Yeah, but it, you know. one, it's still a young event. It's the only second one. And, yeah, you know, yeah, there's yeah. other groups out there who got a little butthurt after last year, but, you know, the hell with them. But, you know, as as the thing continues to go on and the things continue to grow, it's just going to get better and better and... You know, a lot of people do that for the first few years of an event. They'll send one or two guys out to kind of do like a, a patrol mission. And if they feel it's worth to take the rest of their guys back the following year, they, they head out that way and they go do their thing. Yep. Yeah, I'm hoping because uh, the next one that they're doing is going to be up in Pennsylvania, is it? Yeah, I believe so. Well, or the Okinawa event? Yeah, they're, we're going to have another one in Fort Morgan. But I think uh, I heard Galen say he may move the month a little bit. Oh, did you? Uh-huh. You know, we're, we were all talking about how cold it was, but I saw a post. He was just there like two or three days later. I had to get on uh-huh. and check on the cleanliness of the place and all that. He said that the, the cold air was gone. It was warm. He said the mosquitoes were so thick that it was intolerable. He said we got so lucky in hindsight to have the cold wind and all that because I guess the mosquitoes on that property were like you can cut it open with a knife. They were so thick. It was insane. I believe it too, because everything was it was a swamp. Everything was underwater there. So those mosquitoes, once the uh, yeah the weather got hot, it must have just bloomed. Wow. It, yeah. Do you think about that? Well, you know what? I'm glad we suffered through the cold too. Then. Yeah, and you know, especially for us Florida guys, it's kind of nice to go to an event where we're not standing out in 98 degree weather all day. Especially like you used to do your German, and I do a lot of first infantry where we're out there in the wolves all day. Um, yeah, yeah, it's not authentic to the battle, but come on, we're you know we're in the United States in the middle of November, and so it's kind of a nice, yeah, yeah. it's kind of a nice thing. It's getting late in the evening. My birds are getting pissed because they're screaming in the background, and I'm sure you have plenty of things to do. I want to thank you so much for your time, and furthermore, thank you for your service. Um, I know you got to deploy here soon, and you I think you're telling me at the event that's probably going to be one of your only uh, living history events you can get in this year. Yeah, it's looking at maybe. I, I... Typically, I'm only able to do one or two a year, so I'm hoping the next one can be another PTO event. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. He's Corporal Jack Spittler. He's an active Marine. He's a hell of a guy, and he's a dedicated living historian. Jack, thank you so much for your time and your service. Hey, thank you for having me, man. And thanks so much for everything. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for enjoying our content, and uh, thanks for uh, supporting the show. So please just let all your like-minded friends know where they can find the podcast. The easiest place is WTSPWorldWar2.com or on any of the apps where fine podcasts are available. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you guys again soon.
This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>